Hi, this is Robert Cunningham, pastor of Preaching and Vision at Tates Creek Presbyterian Church. We want to thank you for listening to this resource, and we hope and pray it will be a blessing to you. One quick word, though, before you listen. While we are honored to be a resource for you, we do want you to know that an online sermon is no substitute for congregational life. It's a good supplement, but what you need more than anything else is membership and involvement in a local church. If you are not a member of TCPC, I want you to know that listening to your pastor is far more valuable than listening to this. If you are a member of TCPC, I want you to know that joining us in worship on Sunday is far more valuable than listening online. So to everyone, we are encouraged that you have sought us out, but much more encouraging would be for you to seek out a local church community. That said, thanks for listening, and may God now bless you as you do. Each week during these unconventional times, I'm doing my best to preach to the cultural moment. I I, I have seen some pastors uh, continuing on with their normal sermon series, and I understand the reasoning behind that. Uh, But I'm making the choice uh, to continue to preach to the crisis that I just think is on all of our minds and maybe more importantly, burdening our hearts. Because I just believe unique moments demand a unique word uh, from uh, the church, from pastors, ultimately from the scriptures. And each week, it's kind of just been a whatever the Lord is stirring in my heart that week. Uh, so week one, we, we just looked at the simple command, do not worry about your life. Last week, we delved a little bit deeper into our worry by Um, what I called reordering our fears away from lesser fears and elevating the proper fear of the Lord. What I want to do this week is um, is speak to one fear in particular that I felt led to address. As I have followed the dialogue of our nation, it seems to me that fear of loss of wealth— is rising to the same level, if not even exceeding, the fear of loss of health. President Trump tweeted that we have to make sure that the cure is not more harmful than the disease, meaning the shutdown and subsequent devastation to our economy might lead to more damage than the virus itself. Economists are countering the medical voice that our strategy might very well lead to not just a recession, but perhaps even another depression. Unemployment numbers are certainly rising to Great Depression levels. Uh, People who are already living paycheck to paycheck no longer have a paycheck, and, you know, fear that uh, one uh, check from the government stimulus package is not going to come close to meeting the needs. Small business owners are having sleepless nights, panicking over employees they must let go, and even if their business will be able to survive. Uh, Certainly those who depend upon their retirement right now are fearing its reliability. Even the wealthy among us, in a course of just a few weeks, have watched their life's work, perhaps even generations of their family's work, just be decimated. So truth be told, 
No one is immune to the virus, and nobody is immune to the financial calamity of the virus. Now, I have no intention, um, nor do I have the expertise to get into the debate of how long we quarantine to save life versus how soon should the quarantine be lifted to save the economy. I will leave that to the experts. I simply want to speak to the economic fear, which I do believe is as high, if not higher, than the COVID-19 fear right now. My expertise, I believe, is to speak to the fear. So this week, off of our health and onto our wealth. And I thought of this one verse to be our guide. Uh, The first half of the verse tells us what we should be doing in this hour. The second half of the verse tells us how we can actually do this. So really simple, what to do, how to do it. Let's start with what it's calling us to do. The text says, keep your life free from the love of money. Now let me point something out immediately that is key to biblical teaching on money. The verse does not say, keep your life free from money. It does not say you can't have money. It says keep your life free from the love of money. It doesn't say you can't have it. It doesn't say you can't have a lot of it. It says you can't love it. And what this means is that money is not the issue. Instead, it is our heart's disposition toward money that is the issue. To demonize money is to distract from the deeper issue that is at hand. And here is why that is important. If love of money, not money, is the issue here, then this text is for everyone, not just the wealthy. Certainly, those with wealth have to be very vigilant with their money's hold on their heart. But so do all of us. Of course, I've seen the wealthy in love with their money. In fact, many of them are. But I've also been to some of the poorest places in the world and found people there in love with money. They idolize American prosperity and pine after it, even though it will probably never be theirs. The very definition of coveting is to lust after something that is not yours. I've seen dead, broke college students living off of ramen noodles and student loans, slaving away to produce the perfect resume because they are fixated on a future dream of wealth. And I've seen my own heart that is prone to covet the wealth and possessions of others. So the point I'm making is that this is not a money problem. It's a me problem. It's an idolatry problem. It is a disordered love affair with money such that it holds a preeminence in our life. And therefore, all of us, not just those big, bad, rich people that our society loves to demonize, all of us are called to search our hearts to see if this is an issue. But how so? If it can't be measured by our wealth, how much money we have, then how do we measure whether we have a problem here? That is to say, how do we know if our life is free from the love of money? Well, the next clause in our verse points us to the one thing that will let us know, and it comes down to the issue of contentment. 
Look at the words. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. So love of money and contentment are positioned here against each other. So by implication, discontentment is synonymous with love of money. When it comes to money and possessions, discontentment, the constant craving after more, is the symptom of an unhealthy love of money. In fact, discontentment is the litmus test for all idolatry. If you are not content in life without the drug, then you have a drug addiction. If you are not content in life without the perfect body, then you have a vanity idolatry. If you are not content in life without being the best at everything, you have a performance idolatry. If you are not content in life without power and influence, then you have a control idolatry. If you are not content in life without your kids performing well, you have a family idolatry. You get the point. There is one and only one thing in all of existence that we should say, I literally can't live without this. And that is the true and living God. So if anything but God has become that for you, has become something where you can't live life content unless you have it, then that is the definition of idolatry. Now with that said, when you examine the landscape of our culture and our deep discontent that we have, even though we have more than others, we probably need to admit that money is the reigning idol of our culture. Everywhere you look, the message is the same. Your life is found in the next purchase, the next grand experience, the next job that will pay you more, the security of a well-funded retirement, this, the message is simple. Your life is not complete without these things that money can provide. That's our culture. In bondage to the love of money and discontent with what we have. Which is why our culture is freaking out right now. The truest test of contentment with what you have is when what you have is stripped from you. And it seems to me That as our wealth and prosperity is day by day, hour by hour, being taken from us, we are failing the contentment test. And I'm including myself in this. Don't think I'm not thinking about our church finances. Don't think that I don't have those moments where I let my mind run to worst case scenarios for what this could mean for our church and what that would mean for me and my family. If this is the reigning idol of our culture, I think we probably should just all admit that in some way, this is an issue for all of us. Rich or poor, young or old, there is probably nobody listening to this sermon who does not have some repenting to do in this hour. Our lives are not free from the love of money, and we are not content with what we have. But how can that ever change? I don't know about you, but I feel pretty helpless in my discontentment. The idea of true freedom and true contentment, the idea of being able to, quote, rejoice at the plundering of my property, as the early church did, that just seems so far-fetched to me. And I'm assuming the same is true for you. Well, the answer lies in the second half of this verse, but it's an odd and unexpected remedy to our love of money. We've seen what to do. We feel helpless to do it. 
So now let's look at how to do it. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because that because there tips us off that he is about to tell us why and how we can in fact do this because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Now this is fascinating. Somehow the Bible believes that the promise of God's steadfast presence is what frees us from our love of money. At first, this seems very odd, and certainly it goes against conventional uh, strategies regarding contentment. We essentially have two ways to deal uh, with our struggles with discontentment. We either suppress it or we shame it. When I say suppress it, I mean we do our best to just pretend that there is no reason we should be discontent. We have all that we need, counter blessings, think happy thoughts, and force contentment. But if that suppression technique doesn't work, then we turn to shame. Think about all the poor people around the world who have so much less than you. You're an American for heaven's sake. Shame on you for your discontentment. Now be content. But neither of these seem to ever work for anyone. No amount of suppression or no amount of shame can make me content. But what we see in this verse is another way forward. The Bible actually has a very interesting way of addressing our discontentment. Instead of suppressing or shaming it, we are actually invited to indulge it to its proper end. We are asked to follow our restless discontent until it ends in proper contentment. The reason you are discontent is because love of money and all that money can provide will never satisfy. But the answer is not to shut off your longing for satisfaction. The answer is to expand your longings past the silly, trite promises of money and things until these longings end in the one thing that can and will leave you satisfied. And that is the promise our verse is holding out. Be content because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. That promise from God is what you are actually searching for in your restlessness and discontentment. You see, it's truly not about money. Money is simply the worldly currency to our deepest desires. It's not about money. It's about the pleasure and comfort that money can provide. It's not about money. It's about admiration that money can provide. It's not about money. It's about power and influence that money can provide. It's about security that money can provide. Do you, do you see? We must look beyond the money and ask the bigger question of what am I searching for that I vainly believe money will provide? And then we ask this question. Is money actually delivering what you expect from it? Does it work? Is it a good investment to use economic language? And the answer to that is a resounding no. It does not work. One, because it's incredibly fragile, as we are seeing right now with this market crash. So if money is your source of pleasure, comfort, admiration, success, security, and so forth, well, then we have placed our longings on very fragile ground, as we are seeing right now. But even more than that, even when money abounds, 
even in a record economy with record unemployment numbers like we were seeing a couple months ago, even then money fails to deliver what we ask of it. More money only leads to more discontentment, which is the enslaving cycle of our idolatry. The more we have a taste of what money can provide, the more we hunger after more. It's just never enough. And the reason it's never enough is because there is only one thing that is enough. Only one thing where our longings find their proper end and satisfaction. And conveniently, this one thing is free. God himself. And this God, unlike your money, which is as fragile as a market crash, this God offers us all this unshakable promise, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And unlike money and its insatiable appetite for more, we will never want more than God because God is all we need. You know, only, only God can say, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you, and that actually be good news. Think about the word never in this verse. Is that something we should want? Only if we will never get tired of him. Only if we will never want a new and better God. Put it this way. What if the stuff that we buy with our money said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you? What if your clothes said to you, I will never leave you, nor forsake you? Do you know how awful that'd be? I grew up in the 80s. Could you imagine if the fashion of the 80s that I thought was so cool back then said, I will never leave you nor forsake you? What if the fashion, the, the decor of your house, your TV, your phone, your car, your vacation said, I will never leave you nor forsake you? Do you see? There will always be new technology and inventions. There will always be new styles of homes. There will always be new fashion. There will always be the need for another vacation, another experience to be had. But there will never ever be a need for another God. There will forever only be one God who is the same forevermore, yet you will never ask for a new God. You will never want him to change. You will never get tired of him. You will never get bored with him. He will never break. He will never fail. He will never fade. He will never annoy. He will never disappoint. And best of all, he will never leave you nor forsake you. So the Bible's answer to the love of money and discontentment is not for you to suppress your longings for more, nor is it to shame you for your longings for more. Instead, the Bible invites us to take those longings to the eternal reservoir of satisfaction that is promised to never leave us nor forsake us. God is everything you are searching for in money. Therefore, we can now obey the command, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have because what you have is God. But there's one more key to contentment here that I don't want us to miss and it has to do with the costly love that we see in this promise. You know the only things in this world that we actually are content with? Those things that bear the costs of love. So a man proposes to his girlfriend and she knows that diamond isn't the best diamond in the world. 
There are millions of more costly diamonds out there, but she is wholly content with that diamond. She would never say to him as he's on his knees and opens that box and says, will you marry me? She would never say, is that it? You know, I was, I was hoping for something bigger, something better. I'm not content with that. Why would a fiancé never say that? Because of the love that diamond bears. The family heirloom passed down that may not be worth much if you were to sell it, but to you, it's priceless. You are completely content with it. Why? Because of the love bound up within it. Well, consider now, as we close with the costly love that is bound up within the promise, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Does that language sound familiar? It should. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Answer, so that God can say to his people, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. The only reason God can say to you, never will I forsake you, is because the only begotten Son of God was forsaken. We who spurned our God turned away from the fountain of living water and thus deserved an eternal destiny of utter discontent, an eternity with our longings raging and no ability to have them quenched. Instead, we have a God who loves us enough to pay the highest cost that we might have Him, His all-satisfying presence that cannot leave us nor forsake us. Beloved, make no mistake, this promise is free, but it is not cheap. It is offered to you at the greatest cost of love. Now, may it be enough for us in this hour. I don't know what will come of this. I really don't. Another Great Depression may very well be on the horizon, or we could get through this and the economy comes roaring back stronger than ever. I don't know. But the point is, we don't have to know in order to be content. Because whatever happens, I know what will never happen. God will never leave you. God will never forsake you. Let's pray. Lord, with that promise of your presence. Oh how, oh, how badly I wish we could take communion right now and taste for ourselves the presence and promise of our God. But we'll have to wait. Until then, would you fill our hearts with the assurance of your presence and promise that indeed, even now, by the presence of of your Holy Spirit, we are sealed for all eternity, and we know that you will never leave us, and you will never forsake us, and we know that you are all that we need. Lord, we're discovering that in so many ways. Never, Lord, do we recognize that God is all we need, more so than when God is all we have. And for some of us right now, you are all we have but I pray that we would all recognize that you are all we need. 
bless you for this promise. Thank you for the cost of this promise. And Jesus, thank you for bearing that cost. We love you. We thank you. And may we bear witness to your eternal goodness and satisfaction by our contentment, by renouncing the panic that we see in our culture, and by saying, this promise is enough for me. We need you to do that in our hearts. And so would you please do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.